Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the Rounds Table. We have a very exciting show for you this week. It's all about blood pressure. Yes, we're coming around again and again. And guess who's around again to talk about it? Our good friend, Dr. Paxton Bach from UBC General Internal Medicine. Paxton, welcome back on the show. We've missed you. Oh, thanks, Karen. Glad to be back and so excited to be talking about such a scintillating topic. Who doesn't love blood pressure management? Okay. The SPRINT 75 trial is what we're going to talk about and lead today's show. The SPRINT article by some was referred to as a game changer. Uh, I'm not so sure if it's really panned out to be that impactful thus far, although it was very interesting. But what about in individuals over this age of 75? So in the broader context of things, they estimate that about three quarters, three quarters, it's an incredible number of people over the age of 75 have hypertension in the United States. It's probably close to the same in Canada. And cardiovascular disease complications are a leading cause, they still are, of disability, morbidity, and mortality. And despite all of these individuals on antihypertensives, probably about 40% of them uh, are still having blood pressures over the range of 140 or 90. Um, And as most of you are aware, our current guidelines would suggest that almost all individuals with hypertension should be under 140 over 90. But you know what? The appropriate treatment target for systolic blood pressure in older patients with hypertension isn't actually certain especially if we look at elderly individuals whose function is somewhat impaired or are deemed to be frail. And so that is, I think, a major thing that we hope to look at today. Paxson, any thoughts about this trial in the context of what you practice or in larger society? Yeah, I agree, Karen. I thought this was a really interesting uh, paper to bring up because, uh, like you said, Sprint was had it was a big impact paper, but you could ask whether it really applies to the patients we see day in and day out. So I was quite curious to see uh, what they had to to add here with this analysis. So let's look at what they did in this Sprint seventy five trial, which was published in JAMA. Um, so it's a multi center randomized open label clinical trial. They included patients aged seventy five years or older, uh, and it was conducted between the years two thousand and ten to two thousand and fifteen. And individuals were randomized to a systolic blood pressure target of less than 120, the intensive treatment group, or a systolic blood pressure target of less than 140, the quote-unquote standard treatment group. The primary outcome, they looked at a composite of non-fatal myocardial infarction, acute coronary syndrome that didn't result in a myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, non-fatal acute decompensated heart failure, and death from cardiovascular causes. Secondary outcome was all-cause mortality. So in the end, they managed to include 2,636 individuals over the age of 75. The mean age was 80 years old, 38% of them were women, and they followed them for a, a median of about three years. A third of those individuals were deemed frail, and they looked at ways to measure both frailty and impaired functional status by walking individuals around and timing how long it took them to do that. And the key inclusions in this trial were that they looked at individuals at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So those with established coronary disease, chronic kidney disease, or with a Framingham risk of uh, cardiovascular events of over 15%. As a corollary to the original SPRINT trial, this is the exact same inclusion and exclusion criteria. So they excluded diabetics, 
Point number one, they excluded individuals with a history of stroke. Point number two, and they excluded individuals with a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 35%. So a big catch-all of patients who are not included in this trial. They also excluded individuals who had a history of dementia or lived in a nursing home. So this is really a community-based trial of elderly individuals who are somewhat frail, but many of them are very high-functioning. This is who we're looking at. So in terms of outcomes, what else did this uh, paper address that maybe gives it some value added over the, the original SPRINT trial? Well, interestingly, this trial, like the SPRINT trial, was stopped early by the Data Safety Monitoring Board because the intensive treatment arm was experiencing a significant reduction in their primary outcome. So they said, stop, it's not fair to keep this trial going. Um, and that was after, you know, a few years. So overall, the, the message that we take away from this trial is that among ambulatory adults who are aged 75 years or older, treating to a systolic blood pressure target of less than 120 millimeters of mercury compared to 140 millimeters of mercury resulted in significantly lower rates of fatal and non-fatal major cardiovascular events and death from any cause. So let's break that down a little bit further. What does that look like? So as I mentioned, there was 2,636 individuals and they were well balanced, so, you know, about 1,300 individuals in each arm. They managed to achieve about 11 millimeter blood pressure difference in the systolic blood pressures and a 5 millimeter diastolic blood pressure difference between the standard and intensive. So intensive treatments, median or mean blood pressures were 123 on 62 millimeters of mercury and in the standard uh, group, 134 on 67. So they were able to get people to be, have different blood pressures. Now, there was a significantly lower rate of that primary composite outcome that I described. So they had 102 events in the intensive treatment group versus 148 events in the standard treatment group. And that corresponded to a hazard ratio of 0.66. So it was better favoring the intensive treatment group. Well, that's very interesting. And what about this idea of, of addressing frailty? Well, so this is a really interesting part of the trial, and I think it's one of the strengths of the trial overall. They didn't just want to look at age as the only important factor that might contribute to benefit or safety uh, and adverse outcomes. So they included frailty, which other trials have, you know, much, much smaller trials, observational studies have looked at before. But this is really an impressive thing that they've done to include patients with frailty. And they use the frailty index, which is a, you know, a way of measuring frailty in an elderly individual. And it looks at a whole bunch of different components of their health and functional status to be able to determine if somebody is, quote unquote, frail or not. A third of patients in this trial were actually frail. So you're looking at those who might be at increased risk of adverse outcomes of antihypertensive medications. And were there any differences found in, in those who were particularly frail? If you looked at the, the rates of significant adverse events, which are defined as fatal or life-threatening events that result in significant or persistent disability or they require hospitalization, in other words, something really bad happened to somebody, there wasn't any difference between the groups. That's not quite so black and white. Even though it wasn't statistically significant, I still think you could make an argument that there's a fairly convincing trend towards increased rates of hypotension, about 2%, uh, increased rates of syncope, about 3%, increased rates of acute kidney injury, about 5%. And most importantly, what we always think about is, you know, rates of falls, and that was at about 5% of individuals a trend towards that this occurred more often in the intensive arm than not. Well, that's 
quite uh, fascinating that the results were, were robust uh, even through this elderly group. The overall rate of serious adverse events, although they weren't different between the groups, was about close to 50%. So like half of the individuals experienced a serious adverse event, although they were equal rates in both arms. So, I mean, I think you can call that a strength um, and as well as just an interesting outcome in that that a lot of bad things are happening to these somewhat robust uh, ambulatory community-based, you know, individuals. Mm, absolutely something to keep in mind, yeah. So I think, you know, the strengths of the study, as I mentioned, they, they included frailty and functional as this really important component of geriatric medicine that isn't always easy to include in a lot of studies. They had a lot of very robust pre-planned and appropriately powered subgroups a good representative population, which speaks to its generalizability. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, one of the other strengths is they recruited this, this at-risk population. Tell us about the weaknesses of this study or any concerns that you had. A couple of things, just I would say they're sort of moderate to mild limitations. The rate of aspirin use was lower in the intensive arm. You know, that would actually bias towards there being no difference between them as far as cardiovascular outcomes. It's always, it's always disappointing to see a difference between arms because you would expect this to be, you know, working against the intensive uh, blood pressure ar- uh, group, and we still see a robust difference. So that was too bad, but also st- sort of helps support the findings in some way. As I mentioned uh, at the very, very beginning, I think the, la- the fact that this, again, doesn't include patients with diabetes, stroke, dementia, nursing home patients those who are probably at a much higher risk of falls and the effects of blood pressure medications might put those individuals at even increased risk. So we're a little bit limited as far as safety of these medications and blood pressure targets in those populations, albeit you don't necessarily say you can't absolutely think about this blood pressure target in these populations at all because they weren't included, but it is a limitation in that sense. And I think that you know, this population had a fairly well-controlled blood pressure at its baseline upon entry into the study. You know, the mean blood pressures was about 140 on 90, whereas previous trials in elderly individuals have started from a much higher baseline systolic pressures of 150, 160. You're, you're looking at sort of a, a little bit less consistent with the population that I would see coming to me. They usually have a higher blood pressure. But either way, again, you still see a difference in the two arms when you lower the blood pressure further in the intensive group. So I think still it supports the, the study. Yeah. And you know what? I would add to that. You, you've already alluded to this. But just to reiterate, one of the strengths, I think, of Sprint and this trial is it's a very straightforward design. It's that classic RCT. It's asking a straightforward, very clinically relevant question and taking sort of as direct a, an approach to tackling that as possible. So I think it's something you can't ignore. I completely agree with that. So overall, uh, weighing the strengths against the weaknesses and coming out with a balance for this trial, no fatal flaws, very well-designed trial, very methodologically robust, uh, with some limitations that I mentioned about the lack of diabetes, stroke, dementia, and nursing home patients. Okay, so taking a step back from our perspective as providers, who does this study apply to? Yeah, so I mean, your typical patient from this trial is an 80-year-old white male uh, individual who comes in with a, to your office with a blood pressure of 140, you know, on 90, who has multiple coronary artery risk factors. In fact, a quarter of patients in this trial had established coronary artery disease. 
um, and they're currently on blood pressure medications. So this is that person who comes into you and you're going to talk to them about further lowering their blood pressure. What is the main points of this article, if you had to summarize in a, in, in a one-liner? You know, I think what the takeaway message is, is that this trial allows you to confidently counsel your elderly individual patient on the benefits of adding yet another one or two medications to their probably already polypharmacy medic, uh, regimen to control their blood pressure. And you can be more confident and reassured that they're not putting them at increased risk of adverse outcomes. And I would say, you know, what my approach would be is that I would start at 140 systolic with these individuals, bring them down to 130, carefully reevaluate them um, until I get them stable, you know, in and around the 120, just above the 120 range. And then I think I'm happy that they're going to be okay. So you're saying this is a practice-changing trial for you? You know, I, I, I really do. So this, the only limitation is that I'd probably say I'm a, a large minority or even majority of inpatient care that I do as a general internist in an acute care hospital in Toronto. Um, and a lot of them have diabetes or are from a nursing home and have had previous strokes. So I think sort of the population who can actually benefit from this and those that I see is a lot smaller number, but definitely would change my approach in, in the individuals that I think is appropriate for it. But I think it should have major implications for primary care and ambulatory geriatrics care. I think that is where the meat of this trial should be applied. And, and we'll see if those who look after these individuals in those settings uh, believe the findings and, and incorporate that into their practice. Well, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, I read this trial with with great interest because, like you said, Sprint was potentially such a landmark trial to you and I and inpatient medicine awards. It was just sort of one step removed from the patients we see day to day. So, this this is uh, this was quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for chatting about it. So let's let's talk about your article that you chose this week. A very interesting uh, article published in the Lancet uh, online, August thirtieth, two thousand and sixteen. And this is all about, again, cardiovascular event rates and mortality, but looking at specific achieved blood pressure uh, targets in patients with coronary disease. So Paxson, take us through why you chose this article, where it fits in the greater industry that is blood pressure investigations and trials, and uh, let's get into it. I chose this article because like... like as many of us, I think, read the sprint trial, uh, different people have leapt on board with more or less sort of excitement. And I'll be honest, like, I haven't quite drank the sprint Kool-Aid yet. I was I was a little bit apprehensive. And it, not because it wasn't a well-designed trial that read really clearly and on paper it looked really good, but it's just such a, a departure from what we've done typically. And that was, you know, 140 over 90 you know, across almost all all patient categories, that was the standard. So to make such a, a huge change based on this trial was, I was just a little bit hesitant to accept it right up front. I'm going to add to that. I think that's a really important point. I just finished saying that the Sprint 75 trial is going to change my practice, but it's going to change the way I think about these problems. Um, and it might influence my practice overall. But I think you're right that it, it usually takes more than even a really well done big trial to really change the fundamental way that I treat patients full stop. And I think it's these sort of meta-analyses that we end up seeing done later on 
that put in all of these modern day high quality trials to really hammer home a message about what the answer is. So I think that's a good point that you brought up. Yeah. So it was just, I, I tend to read things with skepticism as a baseline, I'm probably on the more conservative side of things. I was just was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop in terms of sprint. There was a few questions that still lingered after the trial was done. So I read this trial here with great interest because the study I'm talking about today, it doesn't refute sprint necessarily, but it does sort of temper those results a little bit. And I think probably provides a little bit more of real world context for it. Okay, take us through its design. How is it done? So this is a very, very different trial from baseline. So this is not your classic randomized control trial. Um, what we have here is a, it's an observational registry, and it's an analysis of data from a perspective observational registry called Clarify. Uh, this is a massive registry that, that is um, run through, I think, I think it's, it's headed out of Europe, but it encompasses 45 different countries. It actually includes over, over 30,000 patients uh, with coronary artery disease who've been registered and followed in this trial for over five years. So for purposes of this paper, they've taken those, they've taken of those 30,000 patients with established coronary artery disease, they've taken 22,672 of them that have both stable CAD as well as hypertension, and they've included it in the trial. So right off the bat, we know that this is not your RCT. And we know that that introduces some some potential bias. So that's an immediate immediate kind of question mark. But it does take a long look at a huge population, and I think there's there's value to that. They divided up their systolic blood pressure by ten. So they looked at them uh, if they're, for instance, between a systolic of one ten to one twenty on average over the five years that they were enrolled in this trial, and they looked at outcomes. They analyzed the outcome in these individuals by stratifying their blood pressure in increments of ten millimeters of mercury. Exactly, yeah. A few things to point out. So they their composite outcome um, included cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, or stroke. Again, just to, to really compare this directly to SPRINT, that there's one huge difference here in that they don't include heart failure in this composite outcome, and that's worth noting. Mm-hmm. The other thing, again, comparing this directly to SPRINT that's worth noting is that 30% of their patients do have diabetes. So again, this is not the same population of SPRINT. But again, it's a very large population that kind of looks at, uh, that has a, lo- a lot of the features of the patients that you and I treat day to day. So, so what they found is after five years of looking at these various, um, these, these stratified numbers by systolic and diastolic blood pressures, is they found what they describe as, as this hypothesized J-curve, which is to say there's a, a sweet spot for blood pressure management where having it too high or too low predisposes you to this primary outcome. And there's sort of a, a middle ground, which is where we should be striving to be with our patients. So just to describe uh, their, their population a little bit more, as I mentioned, there was 22,000 odd uh, patients incorporated into this registry. It is a prospective registry, uh, and they were incorporated over a period of a couple of years, and they were followed annually at checkups on day one of enrollment, and then every 12 months afterwards for five years. Uh, at every time, they'd have a number of, they'd fill out their questionnaires and have a number of, dem- uh, have their demographics checked, um, and a number of different metrics, including a measurement of their blood pressure. There, there was no intervention per se, but their, their blood pressures were recorded as managed by their physician, and then they were stratified by, by systolic and by diastolic pressures into these categories, and analyzed, again, using, this, using uh, Cox regression modeling to try and sort out whether blood pressure itself was an independent predictor of their outcomes. You could not have set that up for a better segue, so what did they find? 
So the bottom line, as I mentioned, was describing this J-curve. They, they did their analysis in a number of different ways, uh, and, they, and they did this both for systolic pressures and diastolic pressures. The findings were relatively similar, so I'll just describe the systolic pressures. So, so what they did find overall as a five-year outcome um, was that there was, or after five years, was a 9.3% incidence of the primary outcome, which was, again, uh, cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke. So pretty high rates. They found that their blood pressure range of 120 to 129 systolic was sort of their sweet spot as in terms of the lowest incidence. So that was used as the reference range. Patients whose blood pressure was actually below 120, so in that 110 to 119 range, their actual their hazard ratio of that primary outcome was 1.56. So it was actually an increased risk of that palm, of that primary outcome uh, in that group where their systolic pressure was actually controlled below 120. Hmm. Conversely, in patients whose blood pressure was higher than 140, they showed a similar hazard ratio of about 1.51, so suggesting that, that blood pressure above 140 is, again, not in that sweet spot. It's on the upslope of this J-curve, uh, whereas 130 to 139, there was really not a significant difference. So just to summarize that, they described the quote-unquote sweet spot of blood pressure control in this in this cohort to be somewhere between a systolic of 120 and 139. To me, that sounds like in what we know about upper limit targets for blood pressure, this is sort of a reaffirming trial from those results. But in the question of how low should we go and is there too low, there is a too low that you you know we can go. We shouldn't be going below this sort of 120 mark because we're putting our patients at almost equally increased risk. Yeah, so so this J-curve is not a new idea, and it's certainly been described before in, in other forms of studies. But it's nothing, nothing nearly as robust as Sprint, though, which which are, was arguing that, that we were able to go safely below 120. So so this, on first blush, does appear to kind of argue against Sprint, but we can we can dig into that a little bit more. Just to, just to step back and really talk a little bit more about the methods and results, we talked about the main findings and, and those hazard ratios as far as systolic pressures go. I mentioned, I'll mention that uh, diastolic pressures uh, showed a very sort of similar pattern, so we'll, just for simplicity, we'll focus on the systolic pressures. They did another, a number of another analyses, uh, sensitivity analysis, etc., excluding CHF patients from their uh, analysis to, to make sure that there wasn't what they call reverse causality going on and that it wasn't that patients who were particularly unwell had those low blood pressures and that was which was dri driving those poor outcomes so as as best as possible they accommodated for that you know, and and again, this this is within the limitations of an observational trial. The, our gold standard is the RCT, and that's not that's not what we're facing here. But I hate to call that a weakness of the trial or of the study. It is what it is, right? But the power of how many patients are enrolled in this can't really be can't be argued with, and some might argue that it provides a little bit more of a real life perspective as to how these things uh, would play out because. An RCT is such a controlled setting that this could almost be looked at as a effectiveness sort of trial rather than focusing on that. Yeah, it's really, you know, I think that point is right on the money in that uh, because, you know, we talked about the limitations of the Sprint 75 and those populations that were excluded and how that makes it less pragmatic for us. Um, and it always seems to be this trade-off between uh, how controlled your trial is to really get at the, the true question about what is the effect of intervention A versus B versus, well, what does it actually look like? Like, how do I really apply this to the real world? 
So I, I completely agree that the, the size of this trial and the way that they addressed potential inherent biases is really strengthens its overall results. And I, you know, it really sort of convinces me to believe the results, uh, despite the fact that it's a registry-based data. Then let's let's get into those that discussion component of this though, and and how to reconcile this with the day that we're seeing in Sprint and Sprint seventy five. As I mentioned at the beginning, there's a few important considerations here because the population is not the same. We know that this is a population uh, that that thirty percent of these patients do have diabetes. Looking at their looking at their table one, a lot of on a lot of other a lot of the other metrics, they're fairly similar to the Sprint population. Uh, and obviously established coronary artery disease, but it's not the exact same population as SPRINT. So that's our first important point when we're comparing the results of these two trials. Second, second important point, as we mentioned at the beginning, is that their primary outcome is similar but not the same. They don't incorporate CHF into their primary outcome. And if you really look at the SPRINT data, and I believe the SPRINT 75 data as well, a lot of their primary outcome was driven by heart failure. That was by far the most significant contributor to the primary outcome, rather than MIs or strokes. So that also might explain why their results do not echo those of SPRINT, because we're not really asking the same question. Correct. There's been some criticism pointed at SPRINT recently around how they um, have measured their blood pressures in the trial. It's not fair to criticize, because it, again, it is what it is, but it's important to really understand what they were doing. So in Sprint, the way that they were measuring blood pressures was putting patients in a room, hooking them up to a blood pressure device, programming it to have a five-minute pause, and then leaving the room and letting the timer run down. And after five minutes of rest, without any practitioner in the room, it would start to cycle and measure blood pressures. So it gives you a very, very true measurement of their blood pressure. Right, the ideal way, but not necessarily the actually practiced way. That being said, yeah, you or I are, are not going to do that. Many of us will may use a BP True device, but we'll stand there and do it. We may not rest our patient for five minutes beforehand. And realistically, we're still using a lot of manual BP cuffs as well. So that is how more of the patients in this paper were, trial were assessed. Looking at the literature... Is estimated by some of the um, some cardiologists recently at the European Society for Cardiology meeting that the sprint means of measuring blood pressures might be anywhere from five to fifteen points lower than what you or I would measure on a daily basis. So, so this ideal of, of less than one twenty um, is something that we can strive towards. But when you or I are measuring that in our in our clinic in a busy clinic, that patient's true blood pressure may be as low as 110 or even lower. If you were to take that into account, you might think that the sweet spot they're describing here, which is that kind of 130 to 135, is actually probably fairly comparable to, to that in the sprint population where the blood pressure was actually 120. Is your 120 actually 130? That's really interesting. That's a fascinating point. Okay, so put it all together for our listeners here. What's your takeaway from this this registry-based uh, study? Yeah, coming back to who this study really applies to is, to me, this is very much the, the patient that URM might see and that they're probably slightly higher risk than uh, than some of the patients described in Sprint. They're your 65 to 70-year-old male, maybe a smoker, may have diabetes, known coronary artery disease. That's a patient I recognize. That's a person I know. I feel like this does apply to me. And the main learning point of this article to me is that 
this J curve is probably a real thing. And I think most people most people would acknowledge it is a real thing. It's just a question of how low do we go before the, you start to seeing uptick in events again. Uh, and I think this article does a, a good job actually of kind of aligning with Sprint to suggest that we're probably doing an okay job hitting one when we hit 140. There are probably patients who would benefit from more aggressive blood pressure management than that. But more than anything, I think it gives us a bit of room to use our judgment with these patients and try and assess risk, assess the risk in a patient of their of their cardiovascular risk as well as how well they're tolerating their blood pressure medications and how strongly we feel about about pushing them even lower. Excellent, Paxton. Thank you so much for that very interesting study. I'm really glad that we brought that forward. So let's move on to my favorite part of the show. We're going to talk about the good stuff segment uh, this week. It's things that are catching our eyes in the world of medical news. Paxton, what are you reading about? So something caught my eye recently. I am not a particularly uh, technology-driven person. I'm fairly simple. But what I do find in some patients, I like to recommend tools that, that they may use to help with things like diet and activity. Things like MyFitnessPal or other apps help people with their diet, I find. And I, I was a big fan of the idea of the Fitbit. You, you, you know those patients. Some, some of them are very technology-driven. They love gadgets. This is a way of getting all these metrics. So I thought the Fitbit was a pretty cool little, little tool. And I saw two articles come out in the last couple of weeks that maybe argued that it's not quite as effective as it could be. So the, the larger one was actually published in JAMA. They took uh, patients and they gave them sort of baseline coaching in, in lifestyle changes. And they randomized them to, to just that baseline coaching or that coaching and a Fitbit. And they followed them for a year. And what they actually found counterintuitively is that those who had the Fitbit, both both groups lost weight over, over a period of one year, but those with the Fitbit actually lost less weight than those without. Weird. Yeah. Did they talk about why? So, I mean, you can only hypothesize. Uh, some people wondered whether whether it may, may be attributable to the fact that their exercise suddenly felt like a chore, something they needed to do. Uh, others were, were wondering if, if maybe it was just they were just trying to get their steps in and, and maybe not thinking about the quality of the exercise that they had. You know, there was, there was a number of different hypotheses there. Maybe you said, hey, I did 10, you met you, actually quantified your steps. I did 10,000 steps today. I can have two donuts instead of one donut, you know, like one treat at the end of my week. And I'm done. I earned this. Yeah. Yes. So it was quite interesting. I mean, I think that, I think it's still quite cool devices that there are definitely patients where I'm going to recommend them to because there's some people who I think that really gravitate towards that kind of thing, but as a, as sort of a, tool for for everyone it may not be quite as uh quite as helpful as as i hope very interesting yeah very popular devices you see a lot of them around you hear lots about them maybe not entirely all that are chalked up to be so i was reading about a very fascinating article out of the uh, npr website on their health uh, health shots section and i am going to call my good stuff segment this week the law of diminishing returns so this article uh, this little piece was talking about whether we're reaching the end of a trend in life about having longer, healthier lives. It starts in the 1960s, right, where 50% of individuals in the U.S. would die of cardiovascular disease. And a lot of them would die suddenly. In fact, you'd hear a lot of stories about people dying of indigestion 
when really they were dying of heart attacks that were, you know, presenting like indigestion. And they would just kind of drop dead one day, and that was it. But today, we've made huge inroads into the treatment and prevention of cardiovascular disease. We just spent a whole episode talking about blood pressure and Fitbits. Um, and today, we think we're down to about 25% of individuals in the U.S. are actually dying of cardiovascular disease. However, this trend is being counteracted by the se severe rates of obesity. So we've reduced a whole bunch of other uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease, you know, cholesterol, hypertension, and all that kind of stuff. But we have an obesity epidemic that's taking over, and that's counteracting our effectiveness in cardiovascular disease. But it means that people are developing cardiovascular disease, and then we're able to sort of keep the body chugging along in a sort of a pseudo state of, of life where, you know, quality of life is, is decreased because they have end-stage heart failure or things like this. So the article brings up a really fascinating sort of existential question is, so if we were to get to a day, let's say we cured obesity and we cured cardiovascular disease, and we could get to a day where we don't die of heart disease anymore, then what are we going to die of? Uh, you know, there's only a couple things in life that are certain, your taxes and that you're going to die. And so what are we going to die of? And they bring up the question about maybe, you know, the rates of dementia, which is an age-related phenomenon most of the time, are at an are rising at an alarming rate. And are we all going to just die of a, of you know, in the setting of dementia and, and how sort of somewhat troubling to the psyche that is to think about in a long, prolonged death, potentially in a nursing home somewhere versus just one day you're shoveling and the next day you're no longer alive. So it was a, a very powerful, uh, but I thought interesting concept to think about. Well, it's an uplifting way to bring this episode to a close. Yeah, I know. I have a tendency to gravitate towards a lot of things around death. I don't know. I, I find it fascinating. It's not the most uplifting. I agree. I apologize. Maybe I'll try to find something happier for next week. No, it is very interesting and it's food for thought. But a heck of a way to end an interesting discussion. Well, Paxton, as always, a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for bringing all of your insight and intelligent uh, discussion around what I thought was a really uh, fascinating show. And uh, hopefully you'll join us again soon. I would love to, Karen. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstable podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.